This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Just a heads up, this episode discusses death and a tragic fire. Take care of yourselves. And if you're a new listener, this is our ninth episode. Make sure you start with episode one. It had been more than a year since I first started exploring the rails. But finally, Ruby was about to come home. Ruby called and told me she was approaching San Francisco in the Jesus Metro that car that she and her boyfriend were given by a devout Christian on their way through Washington. Along the way, they'd picked up a few passengers and another dog. The image of this vehicle crossing the Golden Gate Bridge made me grin every time it popped into my mind. But there was no longer a home for Ruby to return to now that I had downsized from my apartment in Oakland and was living in the barn. And I knew she wouldn't call me first, but at some point she would. When she did, Ruby said she already had a place to stay, a house near the railroad tracks in Oakland, the Woe Mansion. Her roommates were several women who'd also gotten off the rails, at least for a while. A few days later, we went out to breakfast. She looked great, happy, healthy, and full of energy to begin her new life. It was almost unbelievable to be sitting with her at a cafe near Jack London Square, hearing about her plans and how she needed to get a job. But she wanted no help. She could do it all herself. But after she'd been home two months, Ruby still hadn't answered a single question about her life on the rails. I didn't know anything more than what I'd been able to piece together during our sporadic phone calls when she was away. Instead, Ruby just patiently told me that I'd never understand, and she didn't want to explain. But every day, I wondered if this was the morning I'd wake up to find that she'd left again. Honestly, I didn't see much reason she would stay, She had a soul-destroying job that offered meager wages. Ruby was working as a peachy puff girl, a freelance cigarette girl required to dress in a sexy Halloween costume as she took a tray of cigarettes, candy, and condoms around the nightclubs of San Francisco, being insulted and propositioned by tech bros until the last call. If this was the working world, I didn't see anything holding her to this side of the tracks. And then, late in December, we got the news. 
It was an unusually cold night in New Orleans. Squatters were blamed for a warehouse fire that killed eight people. A cadaver dog searches the remains of an abandoned warehouse. They didn't know how many people were actually in the building. They were so badly burned that officials couldn't immediately determine the sexes or ages of the victims. Ruby called to tell me about the fire. She knew where the warehouse was and had met people staying there when she lived for a while in New Orleans. I could hear from her voice that Ruby was shaken. Eight of her peers had died. And when we got off the phone, I shut my eyes to absorb the news. When Ruby was out on the rails, I was most afraid she'd die in a squat fire. I'd had that nightmare too many times to count. And I thought about the parents of the eight who died. What were they going through? Instantly, I wanted to go to New Orleans. Well, the news stopped short of any real specifics. I knew better than to dismiss the eight who died as merely homeless. I knew how they died, but I didn't know how they had lived what forces had pushed them onto the rails, and what had they left behind. If I could understand that, maybe I'd be able to answer the questions Ruby hadn't about life on the rails. But I'd never be allowed into this world unless I had someone to vouch for me. And the perfect person for that was Ruby. She'd stayed in New Orleans twice when she was on the rails. I called her back, explained that I wanted to report the story of the squat fire, and offered to pay her to be my research assistant. She surprised me with an enthusiastic yes, The stories of the squatters needed to be told, and this was a chance to be with her grieving community. So two weeks after the fire, we boarded our flight to New Orleans. I didn't want to hope for too much. By then I knew how the rails break your heart, and they'd done it for many in New Orleans. I'm Danelle Morton, and this is City of the Rails. kind of been an ongoing thing. People just stop by and drop off things. I'm walking with Ruby and her friend Izzy, deeper and deeper into New Orleans' ravaged 8th Ward, one of the hardest hit by Hurricane Katrina. We set up a skate park over there. Five years after Katrina, the streets are still rutted and the neighborhood is a ghost town. We make our way down North Pierre Street, past boarded-up houses, next to a few occupied ones with tidy fenced-in front yards. So yeah, everyone was grieving really hard. And in their own ways, you know. Izzy lives across the street from where the warehouse used to be, and he wants to show us the memorial to the eight who died there. Right after the fire, the city bulldozed the wreck of the warehouse, and Izzy told me he watched as day by day, groups of people came to the site to pay their respects. We walked toward the handmade cross erected in the empty field of ashes, with flowers, candles, pieces of jewelry in a bowl, burnt remnants of clothing and books, and a few stuffed animals. Among the bits and pieces included in the memorial, Izzy points out cans of alcohol, left as tribute to those who died. That's notable in this hard-drinking community. Naturally. Actually, we were surprised. There were so many beers and Four Locos and things left here unopened for weeks. You know, it was, it was pretty cool. 
I mean, it looks like they're all gone now, but <laughs> it's cool that it lasted so long, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Izzy Ruby and I stand around the cross holding hands to observe a moment of silence for those who were lost in the fire. The dead, aged 17 to 29, were from Wisconsin, Texas, California, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Nebraska, and New Orleans. Around us, the terrible loss of the squat fire still hung in the cold winter air. But not everyone was sympathetic to the tragedy, which was the biggest fire in the city in 30 years. Some called to tighten the vagrancy and busking laws to discourage these people from staying in New Orleans. Here at the memorial, as we bowed our heads to the deceased, I was grateful that my daughter was at my side and I was holding her hand. Although this is a bit burned, this stuff. After the visit to the memorial, I dropped Ruby off at a friend's apartment in the Ninth Ward and drove across town to my friend's place in the upscale Garden District. My plan with Ruby was we'd meet every day in the French Quarter and go visit her friends in the Eighth and Ninth Wards. But time down here feels different. Days in New Orleans didn't really get started until 2 p.m. A bit off kilter for someone like me, who gets up before sunrise, right around the time Ruby and her friends were going to bed. So when we met for breakfast the first time in the French Quarter, Ruby suggested we have breakfast tachos, nachos made from tater tots. It's two o'clock, I'm eating breakfast, and it's tachos. New Orleans was already flipping me on my head. While I was down here, I wanted to learn more about how the traveling kids fit into the city of New Orleans. So I looked up Chris Rose, former columnist for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, for a time, Chris had been the face of New Orleans. His columns on the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina became a bestseller called One Dead in the Attic. But two years ago, Chris left New Orleans after 35 years. He was another person who deliberately detached himself from the city when the conventional world got to be too much for him. So when I tracked Chris down, he was living on a campsite in a national forest in Mississippi. He's arranged a life where the only two bills he pays are his cell phone and his car insurance. A life led with very little money, not unlike the hobos I was going to ask him about. And although Chris chose to leave the city behind, he understood why the traveling kids are drawn to New Orleans. You can still hear the languid pace of life in his voice. It's easy. It's a very comfortable place to live. It's, you know, the most Caribbean. It's the northernmost Caribbean city, right? And it is. Its pace of life is one that's very comfortable. You can be ambitious, but you don't have to be. You can chase money, but you don't have to, to live a comfortable and successful life there. If I was riding rails, I could see it'd be very easy to stay there because the weather accommodates it and the community is large. You know, they've got their own microeconomy going on. It's very favorable to staying. In a city open to the offbeat, the eccentric, and the unconventional, high season for the dirty kids starts in the fall. In October, riders start heading south to New Orleans from crumbling industrial cities in the Rust Belt. It's a pretty comfortable place to spend the winter, and many set up in New Orleans until spring. Everyone knows the parties start Halloween night. New Orleans in the wintertime is just like... You know, it's like almost like you're at the, the festival of dirty kids. There's literally like hundreds of kids and people who travel. That's Scott Michaud, the bassist for Profane Sass, the band that plays our theme song, Wayfaring Stranger. 
As it happened, Scott, his girlfriend Becky, and the whole band were in New Orleans in the weeks before the squat fire. Originally, they intended to stay only a few days, but New Orleans has a way of getting you to forget your intentions. It's like even walking to the French Quarter or Decatur Street, 20-minute walk, but you'd run into other people you had met, and you'd sit there, and you'd talk, and you'd share. Even just like walking from the squat down to play music back could be like a seven-hour thing. And we were all just so like, follow the wind and follow the signs and follow the omen. Let the universe decide where we're going today. And for Scott and his bandmates, it wasn't just the pace or the conviviality. It was the music. There was just so many great street performers down there. So you kind of like join forces with other musicians for a little while. And sometimes by the end of the night, you have 14 people all playing these songs that we kind of all know. Morgan Usselton, who we met in the episode about women on the rails, had another name for New Orleans. Party city, like this dark, mysterious city. Like, we are a part of that culture. People that are coming to visit loved the shit out of us. They loved, like, the old-timey folk, like, playing their music. For musicians, New Orleans held a special appeal. They felt the love from some of the city and its visitors. But it was a different story with the police, who tried to push hobos to the edge of town. Because when you go to the French Quarter, you got about three days. The cops basically say, like, we're going to continue to give you tickets. But if you go to the ninth floor or the eighth floor, we won't mess with you. So it pushes us over there um, so that we can get the hell out of the nice part of town. So New Orleans could be easy living with hard looks from some of the locals. While Profane Sass was in town, Scott and Becky experienced the aggression of people who didn't embrace the dirty kids. I remember specifically this moment, they, the Profane Sass was playing on the street and I was taking care of the dogs and this man in his late 40s, you know, kind of business dress, walked by and so, like, full of anger and hate, leans down over us and throws down, like, 10 or $20 and it's like in our face and says, this is for the dogs so they can eat, not for you, and walks off. So even in New Orleans, it was hobos versus society. And resentment from the locals meant that if you wanted to stay in town and housed up, you had to find the right neighborhood. So Ruby and I left the French Quarter and headed back to the 8th and 9th wards. Here on the edge of the city, 43,000 homes stood abandoned since the hurricane, a quarter of New Orleans' housing stock, which made the neighborhood a perfect destination for squatters. Ruby took me to a squat on the far edge of the 8th Ward, where her friends Aaron and Momo lived. After a few days of squat shopping, breaking into 10 or 15 empty houses, they found the right one. And they were like, we're moving in. This is it. We didn't do anything to it except we swept. And then we started finding... Furniture. Aaron and Momo didn't need much to survive. Momo pointed to $3 sitting on the crate next to her bed. Like, I've got, you know, $3 and chains that I've had for, like, a week and a half. Yeah. With just 3 bucks, anyone could furnish a life here and just as quickly abandon it. But in this squat, Aaron and Momo had settled in for a while, even decorating it on the cheap, in a way that I loved. They'd gone to second-hand stores and bought pairs of sparkly stiletto heels and balanced a shoe over each doorway in the house. This was a remarkable turnaround for Momo to find a home in New Orleans, 
Last time she was here with her boyfriend, they swore they'd never return. How come it was so hard last time? Because uh, we were doing too many drugs all the time, and his dog got hit by a car and almost died, and I went to jail and just a lot of stuff. It was, lot, it was really just a lot harsh. Of, we were like, New Orleans is cursed. We're never going back. But I've been telling him about everything I've been doing here, and I was like, I'm not going to let New Orleans win, you know? We sat on the floor of Aaron and Momo's squat, me on a mattress and Ruby in a tilted dining room chair. I was surprised how comfortable we were in this odd situation, with me peppering them with so many questions. How did they survive when they got housed up? How did they structure their days? And what kept them here? I was asking them everything I'd wanted to know about Ruby. And Ruby never interrupted, only spoke up when she wanted to draw a boundary around what I could ask her friends. Questions about specific yards and how to hop a train were off limits. We talked until the sun went down at five, but my New Orleans education was only beginning. Later that night, we all met up again to go to a birthday party at the St. Rock Tavern. The party was for Ugly John, who appeared to have been on the party bus since the day before. He was swaying around, drunk off his ass, with about $30 and $1 bills pinned to his shirt, front and back, a New Orleans birthday tradition. He was a little bummed on his birthday, though, because he'd just broken the bar's toilet and couldn't remember how. All he knew was most of his birthday money would now go to paying off the bar owner. I was right in the middle of the rolling party, ordering pitchers of beer, which was making our table pretty popular. In return, I was constantly being offered free drinks, free drugs, and free homemade tattoos. Close to midnight, the girls wanted to teach me how to twerk. Why? Because we were all headed to a club that was hosting booty night. Twerking was practically a part of the cover charge. When we got there, the club was packed in this pre-pandemic ecstasy. The sax player left the stage and walked among the crowd, eyes shut, with people touching his arms as he played. Everything I do is going to be funky from now on. And yes, there was twerking. And I'm glad there were no cameras there to record this moment. It was around two when I pulled myself away from the club, even though my new friends begged me to stay. I drove across town, through the fog, to my friend's place. When I got there, I drunkenly fumbled with my keys and opened the apartment door. There in the doorway to an empty apartment, the intoxication of booty night suddenly faded and everything from the day started to hit me. I was thinking about standing by the memorial, holding hands with Izzy and Ruby, about the parents who'd lost their kids and the way Momo and Alana lived and about ugly John and the fun I had with my daughter and her friends. With these highs and lows all in one day, I sat on the couch with the television on, catatonic. I was fully seeing the life of a traveling kid, not having someone describe it to me. What was I supposed to make of this town? It ended up being Chris Rose who characterized it best. Like Momo, he'd struggled trying to leave the city. Well, that's the thing, there's a lot of shadows in New Orleans. There's this huge carnival of life out there in the presence for everybody to see and to participate in. But all around that, all around the bright lights and carnival of the French Quarter on all sides of it are the shadows. Dark streets, 
empty buildings, open fields, blocks and blocks of areas that are unpeopled and unpoliced. And the train yards, of course, are right there. And it's easy to move in those shadows. If you just float along the sidewalks, not bugging anybody, nobody will notice you. There's a lot of invisible people in New Orleans. Let's put it this way. If you were wanted by the law, where would you go to go off the grid? I mean, it's been this way for not decades, but for centuries in New Orleans. It's, it's where people go to go off the grid. Um, you know, there's always the, the joke that the guy passing on the street's a serial killer. Who knows? People just go there to disappear. They always have. Chris was describing a dark kind of New Orleans magic. The city had an air of mystery mixed in with the fog, one that could envelop you like a cloak. It was the perfect city for the traveling community. As I tried to sleep, my ears still ringing with the saxophone music, I knew that tomorrow I'd need to get down to business. I'd meet up with Ruby and start figuring out what happened that night in the warehouse. Ruby would lead me to people who'd seen the fire. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I was starting to get my grounding in New Orleans. I could see how the warehouse squad and its residents fit into the fabric of the city. I wanted to understand as much as I could about the warehouse and the days leading up to the fire. And from what I gathered, the squat was a special place. The people who helped me understand why were the members of Profane Sass, the band who performs our theme song. They were among the last people to stay in the warehouse. For years, the band had traveled from show to show by hopping trains. 
so a whole group of them rode down from Pittsburgh. When they arrived, they heard about the perfect place to stay, right by the railroad tracks and within walking distance of the French border. People would sleep in the field nearby just to be near it. What made this squat so special? For one thing, it was huge. Kiwi, Profane Sass's banjo player, told me there was plenty of room for the band and their friends. Yeah, it had these huge doors that we'd all hang out on. It was like right by the train yard. And we're like, yeah, this is perfect. Probably 30 by 50 or 60 foot wood warehouse. There was a big room in the middle. And it was clear this place was known to the writing community. Becky told me you only needed to look at the walls to see if your friends had passed through. Murals, tags, everyone would leave their mark. And so it was almost like just this history of who was here, a lot of good messages. Hey, Scott. What are you doing? Profane Sass sent me a video they took of the whole setup. Is this our home? This is our home. Yep. These are all the kids. This is our family right now. And slung over a roof beam was a 20-foot swing that swept slowly across the main room. Through the open warehouse doors, you could see the trains in the yard. It was super fun to swing on that. And it, you would, while you were swinging, the big open doors were there, so people would be gathering and talking. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. Here on the edge of town, they partied into the night, playing music, swinging and dancing. It was a squatter's paradise without any fear of getting busted. It was definitely one of those neighborhoods where people don't call the police, you know, so like we didn't even worry about that having 70 or 80 people out there at the warehouse, you know, uh, we didn't worry. Everyone has such vivid memories of the warehouse, but it wasn't an easy place to stay warm. The band had traveled south in search of warm weather, but Kiwi said it was surprisingly cold when they got there. With the moisture of like how wet New Orleans was, the nights are super cold, so we all had sleeping bags and stuff and we'd probably you know we all cuddled together and we had dogs and kept us warm this weather made new orleans a lot less welcoming than past winters for becky who was on the rails for the first time the cold was unlike anything she'd felt before even though new orleans pulled so many of us because it definitely was not as cold as the northern cities still when you are constantly outside it's hard for your whole body to maintain heat. It just feels colder. The draft, the trains going by, there's no insulation in the room, there's no insulation in the floor. You felt it in your bones. This weather made New Orleans a lot less welcoming than past winters. For Becky, who was on the rails for the first time, the cold was unlike anything she'd felt before. It's different when you are living on the street and the only time you get into a heated space is when you have enough money to buy a cup of coffee and go into a coffee shop you know because you cannot take regular showers because you're not cleaning your clothes regularly society doesn't want you in public spaces so in the open field next to the warehouse the band built huge bonfires every night and felt a deep chill when they had to return to the warehouse to sleep and just the feeling of the fire and then away from the fire. Like that distinct temperature difference is real. But the cold didn't get Profane's ass down. The band spent over a month there, hanging out, meeting people, playing music. And of course they couldn't leave Party City without one final celebration. So the night before the band was leaving to go to a gig in Texas, they had a big send-off. 
right before we left, we had this huge party because we had been there for you know some months or weeks, and so we had this big party where like 60 or 70 people came. We had a, a big old bonfire in the sand, you know. It was a huge party with lots of travelers gathered around the bonfire, and almost everyone carried an instrument. So the whole thing with the traveling community uh, is acoustic instruments because you can travel with an acoustic instrument, you can busk with an acoustic instrument. So there'll be usually like, you know, acoustic guitar, maybe a acoustic bass. Banjo. Banjo, washboard, washboard. Fiddle, jugs, a lot of musical saws, a lot of accordions. Spoons. Spoons. Trumpets. Harmonicas. Harmonica. <laughs> yeah. So... M- Probably half of the traveling kids carrying instruments, kind of what you do, and it was part of the community so much. And so at the end of the night, everybody will do like a big jam session. You'll have like maybe five people or 15 people or 20 people. So everyone was playing music, dancing around the bonfire. But as the night went on, temperatures started to drop. Scott told me he and their lead singer, Tomas, noticed some people in the warehouse trying to find a way to bring the fire inside. I remember somebody's like, yeah, we should bring it in there. And yeah, I remember both me and Tomas were just like, do not do that. That is a wooden floor. It'll burn down. And I remember hearing Tomas and Scott try and advise in the sand pit. This is the safe place for it to be, you know, and trying to provide that guidance to the other community members and friends that 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 was the safer place to have it. So no fire came inside while Profane Sass was staying at the warehouse, but they left the day after the party. The band said goodbye to the people they'd gotten close to in the squat, especially Nikki and Sammy. Nikki had come south with them from Pittsburgh and fallen in love with Sammy, who brought them to the warehouse. Profane Sass promised they'd be back before winter was done, but they never saw them again. And when Scott first heard about the tragedy, he thought back to that conversation about the bonfire. I remember very vividly thinking about that a lot. That's where my mind would always take me, like, oh, how did it happen? Like, I didn't have a doubt that that's what happened. A week after Profane Sass left, the nights were still freezing in New Orleans. So people continued trying to figure out how to bring the fire inside. That was the key decision and one I wanted to know more about. Most of those who died in the warehouse were experienced travelers. Two in particular, Katie Siminer and her boyfriend Jeff Gertz, had a lot of outdoor skills. So how was this decision made? With all the time I'd spent trying to convince travelers to speak with me, in New Orleans, things were different. With Ruby at my side, everyone was talking and she was introducing me to people who knew more about the fire. One night we went to a cookout at a squat in the 8th Ward where hobos were jousting on tall bikes, bikes 6 to 10 feet tall made of two bicycle frames welded together. The knights of the road squared off on the street 50 feet apart, circling until someone yelled, Go! Then they took off toward each other full speed, broom handles blazing, trying to knock the other guy off. It was brutal. One guy needed first aid. After the battle, the warriors grabbed chicken legs from the grill and licked their hands when they were done. But when dinner was served, it was a different story. As a visiting mom, I got a lot of respect from the travelers. Someone produced a chair from one of the squats just for me, and another brought the only plate and actual silverware, 
All of these months I've been trying to get these people to talk to me, to understand their world, and here I was in the middle of it all, treated like a queen. This evening was chaotic joy. I was having a great time in these unstructured days, 180 degrees from my regular life, and it was the first time since Ruby left that I felt truly free. As dusk settled in, the streets were dark, without streetlights. The only light we had came from the porch lights of nearby houses. Ruby came over to tell me she'd found one of the survivors of the fire. This woman had been living at the warehouse, but she happened to be out the night of the fire, and she was willing to talk to me. This woman didn't want to be named, but she told me she'd lived at the warehouse for a full month before the fire. The survivor remembered how the squatters prepared to bring the fire inside. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it was a giant steel barbecue pit that we have set up, and we have nailed corrugated metal siding underneath it and a perimeter around it to make sure that the heat didn't dry out the boards and then catch on fire. You know, we took precautions. It's unclear just how many train hoppers were in the house that night or exactly when and how the fire started, but it spread through the main room fast. Her friend Byron was passed out on the main floor and woke up when he saw the flames crawling up the walls. Meanwhile, the survivor was walking home, turned the corner, and saw the warehouse ablaze. The door burst open and Byron ran out. He came to and could barely even find his way out. He couldn't even get his dog. Yeah, he said he heard a few people banging and trying to get out, and then some were non-responsive. But he was pretty hysterical at the time, so I just, you know, I like ran up and was like, he's in there, he's in there, and he was just like, everyone, you know. Standing outside the fire, they were powerless to help their friends, screaming inside the warehouse. As we stood on the steps of the building, the survivor showed me her palm. She tried to open the door to the warehouse to save her friends, but it was so hot that it burned her hand. As the survivor told this story, the barbecue was escalating. There was a wrestling match on the asphalt, and I heard some beer bottles shattering on the sidewalk. Then I heard the sirens. Someone must have called the cops. Everyone was scattering. I saw Ruby running toward me, waving her arms. We needed to go. She grabbed my hand and we sprinted toward the rental car. Ruby told me to take a left and I floored it. We zigzagged through the eighth ward with Ruby calling out evasive action, laughing and cursing like girlfriends on a spree. I dropped her off at a friend's house with a hug and started on my confused way home. I was disoriented and ended up driving all over the city, round and round, trying to make sense of everything I was learning. The next day, Ruby was flying back to Oakland. How would I navigate this world without her? When she left to graduation, I thought she split because she didn't love me or trust me. But in New Orleans, she showed me I was wrong about that. It was clear she trusted me when she introduced me to her friends. And while I was sorry to see her go, I was sticking around for a few more days. I wanted to find out more about those who died and start tracking down their families, a few of whom were in New Orleans. Plus, I was meeting with the New Orleans fire inspectors, the people who'd walked through the smoking ruins of the warehouse. What could they tell me about the origins of this tragedy? Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. On a sunny afternoon in the French Quarter, I walked down Royal Street past Jackson Square on my way to New Orleans Fire Department headquarters. At last, I tracked down the man who was first on the scene investigating the fire and got him to agree to an interview. The week before, I'd reported with Ruby, but this interview I was doing solo. She was back in Oakland, and I was already missing the comfort of having her beside me. So the whole walk, Ruby was all I could think about. I imagined her on each street corner and wished she'd pop out of the place we got tachos. Then I heard it. Was that Ruby's song, Windowsill? I changed course and followed my ears. Could she still be here? That's not possible. But then, it's New Orleans. I turned the last corner and found two young women, one singing and playing the ukulele, and her friend on the saw, not Ruby. Why won't you be mine in the daytime? I was proud. Ruby had only traveled for a year and a half, but in her two stints in New Orleans, she'd left behind this song, a bit of beauty that endured. And what was true when Ruby was a little girl was still true here. She always left me wanting more. I wanted to ask the musicians if they knew her, but I couldn't keep the fire department waiting. Why won't you be I arrived at the Central Fire Station to speak with Wayne Regis and his boss, Division Chief Albert Thomas, to learn what they knew about what caused the fire. They showed me to the back conference room where Deputy Chief Regis described investigating the scene, setting up lights around the steaming hulk of the warehouse, and navigating his way atop the dripping embers. 
The floor had already been burned through. There was no roof, there were no walls, and the only thing that was really left standing was, quote unquote, the office area where uh, most of the identified uh, deceased people were. Mm-hmm. Regis is a careful man who quibbles over the meaning of words and doesn't agree easily with someone else's assumptions. So I read the report. And it said that the fire had started from what was like a cooking pit or some kind of a metal... I didn't say that. The news said that. No, I think that is possible and is highly likely. The thing was, there were other people who had escaped the warehouse who Regis wasn't able to interview, so he'd never signed off on the cause of the fire. Something that struck me while talking to these guys was the very things that made the squad attractive to the travelers agitated the firefighters. Everything about this lifestyle is terrible and dangerous. Everything about it. You have buildings that have no utilities. Uh, no one's living there. Uh, it, it's been abandoned since Katrina or before. The inspectors couldn't be sure what caused the fire. There were so many other hazards in the warehouse. Maybe someone forgot to put out the fire before bed. The embers threw off sparks and the floorboards of the warehouse ignited, starting the blaze. Or could it have been arson? Someone who didn't like the dirty kids hanging around New Orleans could have set the fire. Two unknown people ran out of the warehouse as the fire grew. But in some way, the cause of the fire didn't matter. It was the conditions in the warehouse, all the dangers that lurked in the shadows beyond the swing, the mural on the wall, and the bonfire. I asked Thomas and Regis if they could speak to the traveling community about this. What would they say? There is inherent dangers involved with every aspect of this lifestyle. In a structure you have no, if, no legal right to be there. Make them, you know, really aware of that. And I know that they're all connected to someone. Mm. They're people. I asked Regis if he had anything to add. His starchiness and exactitude faded as he searched for what to say. Clearly, our conversation had taken him back to that dark morning in the warehouse. At first, he was unable to look at me as he answered. I mean, I necessarily have anything to state, but I have questions I ask as in all the places that you come from, so terrible, so so divergent off of what you consider to be utopian life that you would rather exist on the fringe of society, squatting, doing stuff like this, as opposed to being in the very company of the people who love you, care about you, and want to see you succeed. I understood why Deputy Chief Regis had those questions, but I knew to the parents of the aide, the why of the fire didn't matter much anymore. After any tragedy, the news covers the story for a week, and then everyone moves on. Everyone except the families and the friends who loved them. Piecing together the lives of the writers kept me busy long after I was back home in California. I spent a year tracking down the families of those who died, as well as their friends. Photographs, too, often of them on incredible train rides or playing music in the streets. If you'd stuck to the headlines, the deceased were faceless, but they were artists and musicians and people who were loved. As I got to speak with the families of those who died, I got to know more about how other parents handled it all. So I was glad to find Marty Jaramillo on Facebook. Marty's daughter was Katie Siminer, age 21 from Nebraska. When Marty and I spoke, I could hear the brightness in her love for Katie. Oh, we always had a very close relationship. 
very close. In fact, <laughs> right before she took off, she said, you know what, Mom? You are my best friend. And I go, thanks, Katie. So are you. Katie was one of eight kids, but Marty told me her outgoing personality always stood out. She was one of those people that if you met her, you never forgot. She just got right inside your heart. She was just so friendly and bubbly and fun. I'd seen photos of Katie, a button-nosed beauty with a hint of mischief in her eyes. And like many of her fellow writers, Katie's journey onto the rails started by surprise. In college, Katie had a near-death experience that changed her entire outlook on life. I don't know what happened. I don't know. She was maybe had a seizure. Maybe she hit her head. But she has been known to have a seizure from time to time. Did that seizure change her in any way? I think on the inside, I don't think she was very forthcoming in that to me. I think to her friends, she had mentioned, you know, I'm not long for this world. I'm not going to live till I'm old. After Katie dropped out of college, she went to work for an aunt in Alaska, but she didn't stay long. Then Katie went to live with another aunt in Portland, where she was first introduced to train hopping. At first, Katie didn't tell her mom about riding trains. Just like Ruby, she missed her mom enough to call home, but she didn't want to answer too many questions. Yeah, like when she would call me and I could hear the trains in the background. I mean, obviously they where they were staying at the warehouse or warehouses, they were right next to the track. And I'm talking next to the track. And so I'm like, Katie, I can hear the trains in the background. What are you on a train? No, mom, stop asking me questions like that. I, I don't have time to answer those kind of questions. But Katie was on the rails now, and there was nothing Marty could say to convince her to come home. Just a year after leaving Portland in the fall of 2010, Katie made her way to New Orleans. She had been planning to leave with her new boyfriend, Jeff Gertz, and their dogs to Wisconsin, but ended up staying in New Orleans for six weeks. On a cold day in late December, Marty got a call from her daughter. And what mood was she in when she called? She said, I'm just calling to say, I hope you guys are still enjoying your holiday. I'll call back again soon. Love you. This was two days before the squat fire, when Katie and Jeff were trapped inside. Marty initially heard about a squat fire in New Orleans on Facebook. She didn't know at the time exactly where Katie was staying, but she had a sinking feeling. In my heart, I thought, I know she was there. I don't know how I know, but I know she was there. She was part of this. Well, then I get a call. One of the hobos who knew Katie called Marty with the news. And he said it was Katie, that, you know, Katie and others. And I go, well, how do you know it was my Katie? And he goes, it was your Katie. Oh, Marty. That must have hit you so hard. Well, I think I went into shock, you know. She's like, what? Soon after the fire, Marty was sent Katie's journal, which was miraculously safe in a nearby abandoned building, untouched by the flames. I got a phone call from this lady from New Orleans, and she said she and her husband owned an abandoned building down there. And after the fire, they went down, and she said they came across these packs and she said along 
with them was this journal laying there and she picked it up. She goes, I wonder if this belonged to any of those kids that were in that fire. And she opened up the, the cover and it said, if I'm dead or really hurt, please call my mom. And it had this phone number. I tried to place myself in Marty's position, thinking how precious that journal would be, one of the last things her daughter had touched. From it, she got a sense of the way Katie saw her life. Marty read me a passage from Katie's journal about a squat she shared in Portland. We were on the fifth floor of a very nice apartment complex, making it easy to keep our filth and debauchery hidden from the society and police. The fancy apartments across the way could see straight in. I wonder what they thought of us. Maybe some envied us, some disgusted. I'm not sure. I know that I felt a little sorry for them. Most of them must have been so trapped in work and pain bills. These are the types of people that take 20 pills a day and ignore their children. I wanted to tell them it didn't have to be that way, but who was I to say what they should do? Maybe they are happy that way. I loved Katie's kindness and humility and her not wanting to judge. I know Marty valued that too. She had a passage from Katie's journal made into a funeral card. This memory of beauty and adventure was what Marty held on to. She liked to think of Katie on a rainbow bus with other young people just like her, off to see the country. Like Marty said of Katie, A lot of life in a short time. Like Ruby, Katie was only on the rails for a year and a half. By the time we spoke, Marty had made her peace with Katie's adventure. She knew her daughter wanted to live life to the fullest for as long as she had left on this earth. I spoke to seven of the eight families about the loss they felt when they found out about the fire. What I learned about the deceased is more than I can do justice to in this episode, but I wanted to honor the lives of those who died. There was Melissa Martinez, 17, a resident of New Orleans, who was staying with her boyfriend, Jonathan Guerrero, 20, on the night of the fire. Katie Siminer, 21, and Jeff Gertz, 22, had planned to leave New Orleans in the new year. Justin Lutz, 29, had just arrived in NOLA. He had a fight with his girlfriend who ordered him out of the car in the French Quarter and he found his way to the warehouse to crash for the night. Nikki Pack, age 23, from Pittsburgh, and Sammy, age 25, from New Orleans, had just fallen in love and had big plans for the warehouse. And there was Anthony Zaletta, 23, a Lakota Sioux from South Dakota. His mother Sheila's grief was so deep she couldn't talk to me, but she wrote eloquently of her loss. Such young talent whose lives were cut short, but they were needed elsewhere, Sheila wrote. My sister believes that Tony began his journey to save him from a more terrible way of dying, truth be told. I think Tony was always close to the great mysterious, and he knew it as a child. And though Sheila never agreed to speak with me, she emails from time to time to express how much she still mourns his passing, also by thinking of it as fate. Many of his pictures have him with this mysterious wink, she wrote in one message, as if he knew something that we didn't. Katie's dad, Scott Siminer, who refused to speak with me about Katie, wrote to make sure I knew that Katie was different from the others. Katie was on an adventure to learn and experience life. 
This was simply one of her adventures that went horribly wrong, and she died. She was not a train hopper, as you state. She was not a homeless person. She was not a lost soul. She had a family who loved her, and she loved her family. It wasn't just Katie's dad. Every other parent I spoke with said that. These were not lost souls. They had families who loved them. But for many of them, home had become a place where they couldn't seem to do anything right, couldn't handle school or work, and couldn't interact smoothly with their families. Part of the pull of the rails was a chance to shake off the scowls with a blind act of daring. Even if these kids had homes, they had found a different sense of home on the rails, a place where they didn't need to know each other's real names. To them, safety was something they built together, and it might only last a moment. That part of what they believed I did understand. It had been nearly two years since Ruby split town to join this community on the rails. And in that time, I'd plunged into the train yard to try to understand what drew her into this violent place. After my time in New Orleans, I now felt like I understood the life Ruby had chosen and some of its appeal. But it was time to stop trying to figure out who she was and why she left, and instead examine what kind of a mother I was. I had to reckon with the fact that there was something I had done that helped push her onto the rails. Oh, Janelle, Janelle, Janelle. <laughs> you and I have been leading rather parallel lives, actually. I lost a kid to the rails. We rode them for almost a decade. We just had, sadly, a very different ending. I look at the trains every day. I'm like, oh, yeah, I could just hop on that and be out of here. There's a type of person that's just like... There's always somewhere else to go. That's next episode on City of the Rails. is hosted and written by me, Danelle Morton, and developed in partnership with iHeartRadio and Flip Turn Studios. Call us. You only have one episode left. The number is 707-653-0339. If you'd like to read full profiles of seven of the eight people who perished in the squat fire, I've posted them on my website. The link is in the show notes. Our executive producer and showrunner is Julian Weller, and our executive producer at Flip Turn is Mark Healy. Senior producer, Abu Zafar. Producers Sheena Ozaki and Zoe Denkla, and Trisha Mukherjee, Jackie Huntington, and Jessica Kreinchich, with production support from Marcy DePina. Original music every episode by Aaron Kaufman. Our theme music for this episode is 1228 by Profane Sass. Thank you for helping us tell this story in so many ways, with your words and with your music. Thank you to Chris Rose for hosting me all the way out in the Homochito National Forest. Thanks to Nikki Etor and Beth Ann Macaluso from iHeart. And condolences to the parents of the people who died in the squat fire. And for all the people who are still mourning this loss. We'll be back next week, one last time, on City of the Rails. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 